Ladies and gentlemen, we have a press report over the wires that the President of the United States has been the victim of an assassination. We will play the funeral march from Beethoven's Third Symphony. That was the scene at Boston Symphony Hall 57 years ago this Sunday. November 22, 1963, as concert goers got the shocking news of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, a moment that forever changed the course of American history. It's also a moment that is vividly captured in the opening of a new documentary, Truth is the Only Client, about the official investigation into JFK's murder, conducted by a Blue Ribbon Commission headed by then Chief Justice Earl Warren. The film is a rebuttal to decades of conspiracy theories that have swirled around the case, seeping their way into the country's collective psyche and popular culture. Those conspiracy theories about Kennedy's murder are all over the map, complete with elaborate and often contradictory claims about the roles the CIA, the FBI, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Mafia, the KGB, Lyndon Bain Johnson, and Fidel Castro are supposed to have had in the events that led to the president's death. But common to all these conspiracy theories is that the Warren Commission was a cover-up and got it wrong when it pinned all the culpability for the assassination on one unstable loner, Lee Harvey Oswald. The new doc forcefully pushes back on the idea that the Warren Commission concealed the truth, including interviews with some of the surviving members of the commission who actually conducted the investigation. We'll talk to one of them, retired Judge Bert W. Griffin, and with the two filmmakers, Todd Quaite and Rob Stegman. And then we'll get an alternative view from Washington journalist Jeff Morley, who for years has been conducting a lonely legal battle with the CIA to release still-classified documents that may or may not shed further light on the president's murder on this episode of Skullduggery's Buried Treasure. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So I have wanted to do a podcast about the Kennedy assassination from the moment we started Skullduggery, in part because I grew up uh, obsessed with the Kennedy assassination, read countless books about it, debated it. Uh, it was just something that was very much a part of my formative youth, but also because of something I read quite recently that got my attention. We have spent 
all this year talking about conspiracy theories. We started this podcast, Conspiracy Land, the QAnon conspiracy, Donald Trump. It's sort of been a sort of main focus of everything we've been talking about for the past couple of years now. And the term conspiracy theory, and this is from a, a book that was done a few years ago by a political scientist named Lance DeHaven Smith, who wrote a book called Conspiracy Theory in America, in which he made the point that the term conspiracy theory did not exist as a phrase in everyday American conversation before 1964. The conspiracy theory label, I'm reading from the book now, entered the American lexicon of political speech as a catch-all for criticisms of the Warren Commission's conclusion that President Kennedy was assassinated by a lone gunman. And since then, the term's prevalence and range of application exploded. And Haven Smith points out that the term first begins to pop up in 64 when the New York Times publishes five stories about the Warren Commission in which conspiracy theory appears, the phrase. So we're going back to the origins of conspiracy theory here by re-examining the Warren Commission. Yeah, you know, yeah, the Kennedy assassination and the conspiracy theories it spawned, I guess, is the mother of all conspiracy theories. Now, conspiracy theories actually do go back to sort of the founding of the republic. They weren't really called that, but, you know, there right. were theory, conspiracy theories about bankers and Freemasons. And of course. Uh, I remember reading about something called the Bohemian Illuminati, you know. Papal plots, <laughs> yeah. you know, right. the Know-Nothing Party. Right. Yeah, right. of course. But, um, but I think, you know, I think the, the Kennedy assassination, the key thing about that moment in our history was it was a time when— people began to start really losing faith in American institutions and in the government. And so you have the assassinations, you have the Vietnam War, you have Watergate, all of these things that make people question, you know, whether the government is on their side or whether the government is in some way conspiring against them. And then there's been this kind of continuum for all of these years since then. And we, of course, are now living in some ways the great <laughs> or the dark age of, uh, of American conspiracy theories. And so you had this kind of foundation, and then you had a lot of big changes in American, you know, political culture and in our society, you know, maybe the biggest one of all being the birth of the internet and the way that you know, kind of fragmented media and gave everyone a platform and, you know, all these other kind of big structural trends in our politics like polarization. And, and so now you end up in a place where conspiracy theories have gone mainstream and you know, tens of millions of people believe in things like QAnon, you know, about this, you know, how Donald Trump is fighting some deep state cabal, you know, of satanic pedophiles and and right. uh, and and cannibals and mentioning Trump, you know, a demagogic uh, president who is, you know, more than willing, eager, in fact, to exploit, you know, Americans belief in conspiracy theories for his own political purposes. And of course, he believes them himself, apparently. 
Yes, he does. Uh, as do a lot of people on both the left and right. That's a, it's another point to make about all this that, uh, you know, the if the Kennedy assassination is the sort of er conspiracy theory that sort of made the phrase part of the American political culture, it's it's worth remembering that it was largely promoted by people on the left, not the right. Today, we associate conspiracy theories with extreme right wing nut jobs, but it began as uh, something very much uh, that was uh, taken up by uh, folks on the left. I, I just want to say, I, I don't want to fan the flames of these conspiracy theories, but I do recall, Isakoff, you talked about why you were so interested in the Kennedy yeah, assassination. Yeah, you're going to get my personal I do recall uh, that you, have, you, yes. you may have a personal connection to yes, the Kennedy assassination. Yes, I do. You're all cosmic, but I had a, uh, a late uncle, Uncle Saul, who was uh, a used car dealer and a bit of a bon vivant, uh, enjoyed uh, the bottle, uh, shall we say. And I remember in his later years him telling me about how he used to be a habituate of the Carousel Club in Dallas, owned by one Jack Ruby, and that uh, Uncle Saul actually met and knew Jack Ruby. Jack Ruby, of course, being the guy who murdered Lee Harvey Oswald. We'll be talking about him in a moment. And um, yeah, that pretty much excited me. I'm pretty sure that Uncle Saul was never interviewed by the Warren Commission or, or the House Assassination Committee, and I pressed him as much as I could. Well, there you go. I mean, yeah. uh, the the CIA withheld and the FBI withheld all sorts of key information from the Warren Commission. The Warren Commission never got to Uncle Saul. <laughs> you know, those are all reasons to be deeply suspicious of the work right. that the Warren Commission did. And reason did. for us to reopen the case with <laughs> this podcast with uh, Judge Griffin. So let's get to it. Okay, we now have with us retired Judge Bert Griffin, a member of the Warren Commission staff, and the uh, two filmmakers who made Truth is the Only Client, Todd Quaid and Rob Stegman. Judge Todd, Rob, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Thank for, you having for having us, us Michael. So a lot to talk about here. Sunday, of course, is the uh, anniversary of the uh, assassination of, of President John F. Kennedy. Judge, you have obviously lived with this case for decades. Uh, you were one of the original investigators. And I understand it was your idea to make this movie. Tell us why uh, you thought it was important that this film be made. Well, let, let me say that it was Todd's idea to do a documentary. But I have felt for a long time that the movies that have been made are a distortion of the facts as we know them. And so I was looking for somebody that would do what Todd and, and Rob, I think, call a narrative movie, a sequel to JFK, if you will. So I called Todd, whom I had known for a long time, but only found out coincidentally that he was into the documentary making business and just call him for the purpose of getting some advice as to how to find one of these narrative movie makers. And he showed up with the idea of doing a documentary. So it really all flowed from Todd. Judge, can I, let me just ask one very quick follow-up question. And maybe this is for the filmmakers, but I would like you to tell the story of the title of the movie, 
the truth is your only client because I think one of the reasons uh, that this is an important film and part of the reason that you did it, I'm sure, is because history has not been all that kind to the Warren Commission. And I think there was a maybe some at some level a desire for redemption. So tell us the story about Chief Justice Earl Warren and why you called it what you did. Well, those are the words of Chief Justice Warren as he spoke to us at our first staff meeting in January 1964. And uh, he made it very clear, and he used those words, truth is your only client. And indeed, that set the tone for all of us. In fact, none of us, look at those of us who were on the staff were not government employees. We had all been recruited one way or another from private practice, the way these things get recruited through people who know you for one reason or another. We didn't know each other. And we were all there determined, like any private citizen, to find the truth about what happened with respect to the Kennedy assassination. And if we could have found a conspiracy, we'd have been national heroes. I've, I've said to people that I'd have been the senator from Ohio and not John Glenn. One of our people did go on to be a senator, as you know. Uh, so we were determined. I'm sorry, who was the one who went on to? Oh, Arlen Specter, of course. Arlen Specter. Right. Yes, of course. Yeah. Right. And so we were we were determined to, to find the, the truth. We knew we would be horribly reprimanded. You know, our, our futures would, frankly, were on the line if we didn't find the truth. If we find something that was fictitious, our professional futures would, would be in danger. But we wanted to find the truth, and the Chief Justice said that to us. And that really was the standard that we pursued. I want to get into uh, some of the particulars and some of the distortions that you feel have been um, out there for many years about the Warren Commission. But before we do, uh, let me just ask uh, Todd and Rob, what appealed to you about making this movie? Todd? Well, my concern is what you mentioned earlier and what Judge Griffin mentioned. Most of the documentaries about this topic are, are conspiracy-oriented documentaries, and, and then certainly the, the narrative film JFK also was a conspiracy-directed type of motion picture. And I felt this was a chance to preserve the testimony of the staff that actually did the work. And that's why we proceeded as we did. Um, there were 10 people that were involved directly in the investigation that really had not been heard from. And I thought it would be, being a lover of history, it would be important to, to preserve their testimony to find out what they thought then, what they think now all these years later when things came out that they, they didn't know. And that's why I, I thought it was an important project to take on. That and my my love of Judge Griffin, who is one of the <laughs> one of the great people that I've ever met. Uh, Rob, anything you want to add? Yeah, I would just say that that uh, I mean, I've always been I've always been a lover of history myself, and I loved making history historical based movies. I was ambivalent about this when I when we first started. I didn't know which side I came down on. I'm you know I'm grew up in a liberal household, and Mike, like most of us, probably thought there was a conspiracy, and it was the process of making this movie that I was went, oh, that's ridiculous. This movie, making this movie, allowed me to find the truth. 
One of the uh, surviving members of the Warren Commission, who I didn't know had served on the Warren Commission, even though I, you know, I'm I'm kind of a, a, a JFK obsessive. I've read you know countless books on the assassination, but Supreme Court Justice Stephen <laughs> Breyer was the fact checker right. for the Warren Commission, and I think we've even got a, a clip of him from the movie. Uh, Mark, you want to play the uh, clip of Justice Breyer speaking? My job was checking the citations, that is to say, looking at the underground, underlying material, the FBI reports and so forth, which were referred to in the report or the 20-some-odd volumes of appendix. And I was pretty amazed at the degree to which there had been an investigation. Uh, I think that just uh, I was doing, a, I think, a part of a year of uh, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald's life, and they knew virtually where he was almost every second. Judge, let's just sort of go over the basics for people who uh, are probably only foggily uh, remember some of the details. But Lee Harvey Oswald was arrested uh, within a couple of hours of the assassination at, at the Dallas movie theater where he had fled the Texas School Book Depository building. What was the evidence that linked him so directly to the murder of John F. Kennedy? Well, I think the first one was that his rifle was found on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository, and uh, two people saw the shots actually being fired from that sixth floor window. And so we had uh, Oswald's rifle, we had his fingerprints on the rifle, we, we had uh, the fact that he had purchased it from a gun sales operation, I, I believe it was in Chicago. I think that was the most important thing that tied him to this. But the fact that, as you pointed out, Michael, that, that he almost immediately fled the Texas School Book Depository and then wound up killing a police officer when the officer tried to stop him. Pretty good evidence in a criminal case uh, as to who was the guilty person. I think the uh, in the movie, the late uh, Vincent Bugliosi, who's written a... Uh... 1,500-page tome on the Kennedy assassination and appears in the film, you know, basically presents this as a virtually open-and-shut murder case. He had, as you say, ordered the Manlicher Carcano rifle sent to his P.O. box under the pseudonym alias he used, A.J. Hidell. The cartridges from that rifle are found on the sixth floor of the book depository. He fled he was a Marxist who had defected to the Soviet Union, disgruntled, comes back with a Russian wife. And as recently as, what, uh, two months before the murder, had been trying to go back to the Soviet Union, visited Mexico City in the Russian um, embassy to try to get a visa to return to the Soviet Union. Well, let me, let me also clarify that a little bit. In Mexico City, he actually sought admission through the, of all things, through, well, through both the, the Cuban and the Soviet embassies, but he saw an admission to Cuba. And I think all of us are, are pretty convinced that he didn't intend to go to go on to the Soviet Union. He wanted, to, he wanted to get to Cuba and present himself to the Castro government and become engaged in their activities. Judge, let me just ask you this, because, you know, this was obviously a search for the truth, a very important one. 
I'm interested what your state of mind was at the outset of your work, because as Mike just laid out, you know, there were these, you know, kind of tantalizing facts about the possibility of international involvement, given who he was, given where he had traveled, given what he believed, given where we were in terms of the Cold War at the time. So you must have, at least at the outset of this inquiry, entertained all of these possibilities. What was your state of mind when this work began? Well, look, for me, the work began actually when I was taking an elevator up to my law office and someone in the elevator said the president had been shot. And my initial reaction was it was one of those damn segregationists because this was, you know, the, the height of the civil rights movement. and there had been four young girls who were killed by a segregationist at a Baptist hospital in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, just two months before in, in September. So I thought this was a segregationist who had it in for Kennedy. When Oswald was arrested and it was claimed that he, and it was announced that, that he was a Marxist who had defected to the Soviet Union, uh, I thought he was being framed. So I, although certainly lots of evidence came out afterward that could disabuse one of that, I nonetheless started my work in the commission with a lot of skepticism. Framed by who? Framed by the FBI. Because Hoover and you know his allies were determined to show that the communists were you know, trying to turn the country over. And also, the FBI had a lot to cover up at the time, in particular that it was aware of Oswald's presence in Dallas. An FBI agent was assigned to uh, keep track of him. And there was even a note that um, Oswald had left for uh, the FBI agent basically threatening him because he thought he felt he was being harassed by the FBI that was concealed from the Warren Commission. Absolutely. And, and what you've just said, Michael, is, is very important to the conclusion that I've ultimately come to is that there is no evidence out there of a conspiracy. Let's just move forward from the assassination to the event a couple days later that really fueled conspiracy theories about the case. And this is one that, as I understand it, you, Judge, were directly assigned to investigate, and that was the shooting of Lee Harvey Oswald by Jack Ruby. And we've got a clip of that seismic event from that day. Uh, Mark, you want to play it? There is Lee So, from the average person's point of view, they learn that there is an assassin in Dallas who's killed the president, and then two days later, another assassin kills the guy accused of the murder. That is the kind of sequence of events that would inevitably raise questions about a conspiracy theory and a cover-up going on here. Just walk us through how you arrived at the conclusion that Oswald's killing by Ruby 
was unrelated to Oswald's murder of JFK. Well, Justice Breyer had said that the commission had almost a minute by minute history of what Oswald had been doing during this time period. Leon Hubert, my partner, and I were determined to get the same kind of information about Ruby. So we started with the point when Ruby might first have known that the president was coming to Dallas, which was in September. Of you mean Oswald was that, coming to I'm Dallas? I'm sorry, that, that Oswald, yeah. yes, that Oswald was coming to Dallas, which would have been in September of 1963. And so we were able to trace Ruby's activities in great detail, especially from the moment he heard that the president had been shot. And what we found, which was, is an amazing story to me and, uh, and amazes me that the public hasn't focused on this, but Ruby actually became the first conspiracy investigator. There had been a blackboarded anti-Kennedy advertisement, full page advertisement placed in the Dallas Morning News on November 22nd, the day of the assassination. And it was signed with the name Bernard Weissman, and it had a black border on it. And Ruby felt that nobody who was Jewish, he assumed Weissman was Jewish, which he was, uh, and Ruby was Jewish himself, that no one who was Jewish would have been anti-Kennedy. And he thought that the Weissman name was a fictitious name that had been put on that ad by people who were anti-Semitic and wanted to have the Jews blamed for the assassination of President Kennedy. So we were able to trace Ruby's activities in great detail up until the time he shot Oswald. And what he was doing in that time period was trying to find Bernard Weissman. And Ruby was, was quite a skilled investigator. Uh, he looked in the telephone directory and couldn't find Oswald's or, or Weissman's name. And then someone suggested that he look at a street directory and he couldn't find Weissman's name there either. So he became convinced that, that he was right, that Weissman was a fictitious person. The truth of the matter was Weissman did exist and he's in the documentary. He's an interesting guy. He had come to Dallas because he was anti-Kennedy and he, and he was part of a group that hoped to take over the conservative movement in the United States. And he put his name on that ad because he wanted to show all the people of Dallas that not all Jews were Kennedy supporters. I'm sorry, I just need to jump with my, just with my producer hat. This is actually just with my producer hat. I think, I think you were saying, I think Judge Griffin said earlier when Oswald was coming to Dallas in 1963 and he meant when President Kennedy was coming. Right. Yes. I'm, I'm sorry. I think Excuse maybe me, I'm yeah. mistake. pick that up. Yes. I just wanted to follow up. There's a, I think there's a very interesting wrinkle to the Ruby story that I was not, had never really focused on, which undermines the idea that this was a conspiracy because it tends to show that it was not a premeditated murder. And this involves a stripper, I believe, uh, <laughs> by the name Little Lynn. Um, Karen Little that's Lynn stage Carlin. Name. Yeah. <laughs> the stage name. So tell us that story. Okay. Um, and uh, Yeah. Well, Ruby, Ruby closed his nightclubs for the Friday and Saturday after the president's assassination. So Little Lynn who was one of his strippers, hadn't, I guess the word hadn't got out to her. She showed up for work, the, the, uh, the club was closed, so she needed money, and uh, she, had, she, was, she needed to be paid. So the next morning, she called Ruby and 
asked, uh, said that she needed 25, she needed money. And Ruby said he would send her $25 that he was going down to the Western Union office. Uh, and that would, that's near the city jail where Oswald was being kept. And uh, so that, and in, in fact, what he did was he went to the Western Union office in his, in his car, parked it in the parking lot and took his favorite dog with him and left his dog in the car. Uh, went into the Western Union office, sent a money order to Little Lynn exactly four minutes before the shooting occurred. And was aware that at that time that Oswald had not been moved because there was, he could see a crowd outside the jail on the street. And so he walked to the, the ramp that went down in and was able to get into the county jail as a police car was exiting. So, so your belief is that if he had not responded to Little Lynn's need for that $25, he wouldn't have been at the Western Union and he wouldn't have the idea to go now to go into the jail. Right. Now, he did have a gun on him, yep. which, which suggest, may suggest to some people premeditation. Well, I think, and Ruby himself basically said that from the time he left his apartment, he had in mind that if he could, could get at Oswald, he would do something. So yes, he, he had a gun and, and, and he could have an excuse that he had lots of money in his pocket, which he did. But I personally think that based on Ruby's own testimony, that by the time he finished the phone call with Little Lynn, he had in mind that if he could get at Oswald, he would do it. But Little Lynn is the one that triggered his leaving at the time he did leave. Right. And we should point out that, you know, the premise of many of the conspiracy theories is that Jack Ruby, who did, in fact, have mob ties, he had connections, associations with various figures in the um, in the mafia, was basically assigned the job to kill Oswald to make sure he didn't talk by the mob. And the problem with that is just the timeline of the events that morning. Oswald was supposed to be transferred from the city jail to the county jail at 10 a.m. That gets held up because poster and postal inspector Holmes wants to grill him further on the uh, on those post office boxes he had where he got the rifle and the alias he used at 10:19. So t- 19 minutes after. Oswald was supposed to have been moved. Uh, Little Lynn calls him and asks for the $25. Ruby rushes down to the Western Union, waits online. The time stamp for the $25 wire transfer to the stripper is 11.17 a.m. And then he walks 454 feet, a full football (laughs) field and a half, to the uh, Dallas jail where he shoots Oswald. If he had been assigned by the mob to kill Oswald, presumably he would have been waiting, you know, from 10 a.m. on. But instead, he was at the Western Union. Right, right. Right. Um, Did you interview uh, Jack Ruby? I never interviewed Jack Ruby. The, the, the Chief Justice interviewed Jack Ruby in Dallas, and I provided a whole list of questions for him, but I was not personally there. All right, I've got a quick question for both of the filmmakers here, because as our listeners, I'm sure, can hear from Isakoff's question, this is a very intricate story. There are many, many different rabbit holes that you can go down. You can get very deep in the weeds very quickly. How do you go about making a movie like this accessible 
to a more general audience. I think you talked about storytelling, about making it a narrative, as opposed to making it just of interest to JFK assassination obsessives or conspiracy theorists. There are two answers to that question, I think. Uh, the, the first is once I, w- once I interviewed uh, all of the, uh, the staff members, I felt that the movie was too self-serving. I believed them. They were all credible, but it was missing something very important to this story, and that was the human factor. And that's when I sought out uh, Ruth Payne and Bernard Weissman and Priscilla McMillan and Steve Barber, who's the guy who listened to the acoustic evidence and determined it was incorrect or the conclusions were incorrect. And that led me to believe that that's the, the true gist of this story. Your comment uh, a few minutes ago about the timing of Jack Ruby, uh, he just happened to be in the area because he was at Western Union. These moments of, of human behavior, happenstance, things just sort of falling into place that way, goes against the true conspiratorial plan. And that, to me, was the biggest realization that I had in this whole thing. We want things to unfold in a tight narrative, novel-like way. It doesn't work that way because it's based on, on the human behavior of various characters. And we learned a lot about Oswald and, and Marina Oswald through, through Ruth Payne and, and through Priscilla McMillan. So all of the staff members' recollections, which you know really pushed everything against a conspiracy, was modified by this, this human story. And I think that's what makes the movie far more accessible to a more general audience. Judge, as we mentioned before, there were facts that were concealed from the Warren Commission, and that fueled a lot of the conspiracy theories. We talked about the FBI concealing evidence, but also the CIA never told you that they were trying to assassinate Fidel Castro using the mafia throughout this period and continue. In fact, on the very day of the assassination, one of the um, CIA agents, uh, Cubans who were being used by the CIA, was meeting in Paris with one of his handlers to get a weapon to kill Castro. So that had to have been shattering news to you when it comes out in the 1970s during the uh, Rockefeller Commission and then the Church Committee. So talk about just your reaction when you learned about that and why it should not undermine faith in the conclusions that you reached at the Warren Commission. Well, I I was stunned by it and angry because we should have been told that. Someone should have been told that. I understand the problems that we had during the Cold War, not wanting certain things to get out. But that was very important for us to know because it it tied in with an argument that we were having within the staff over whether Castro's claim, which we were aware of, that the CIA was trying to assassinate him and which had been reported in the two Dallas newspapers in April when Oswald was living in Dallas and in the uh, New Orleans Times-Picayune in September when Oswald was living in New Orleans. So that we knew that Castro had been claiming that 
the CIA was trying to assassinate him and others in Cuba, but the CIA denied it to us, said they, that, that that wasn't true if we had known it was true. And incidentally, we had an argument within the staff about the significance of that. And uh, one of my colleagues, Jim Liebler, very much wanted to pursue this further. But the answer that was being given to him in the argument that he had with other staff people was that, well, we didn't have any direct knowledge that Oswald actually read those newspapers and knew about that. Well, if we had known that it was true, we would have then been embarked upon a whole series of other in inquiries and investigations at that time. Now, the, the reason I think at this point that doesn't lead you to a conspiracy here is that we have no evidence that the CIA and that anybody in the CIA was involved in, in some kind of contact with Oswald nor is there any reason to think that Oswald even, it even occurred to Oswald that he might assassinate Kennedy until he left the note for Hostie, uh, or Hostie, I guess is the way that he pronounces his name, the FBI agent. So that fact that, but I think, let me, let me add this further. I think this is very relevant to Oswald's motive. My personal view is that Oswald saw nothing wrong with assassinating President Kennedy if Kennedy was trying to assassinate Castro. And so in his, in his own mind, this, this was a completely justified act in terms of the rules of war during this Cold War. Now, of course, you know, most of the conspiracy theories about the assassination are from folks on the left who want to link it to the CIA or the FBI, in some cases, you know, working with the mob. But there's also those who go back to those uh, to Oswald's trip to Mexico City, where he visits the uh, Russian embassy to try to get the visa to Cuba so he can go back to the Soviet Union. And he does meet with a Russian official who has since been identified as a KGB officer who was part of the directorate that conducted assassinations. And that has led to the theory that um, he was encouraged, perhaps, by either the Russians or the Cubans to do what he did. There's unanswered questions about where Oswald was headed when he was fleeing that day. He had uh, enough bus fare to make it to the border, I believe, the Texas-Mexico border. But from there, what was there anybody going to help him or assist him. How do you sort of sort through the alternative theories that either the Cubans, Castro, as revenge, or perhaps the Russians um, may have had a role? Well, I think we all come to the conclusion that, one, not only is there no evidence of any contact between Oswald and those people at the, during the critical time period once he got back to Dallas from Mexico City, but we also have, have had access to KGB records reflecting what the KGB thought of Oswald. And uh, I think once you get into the details of this, you, you, you realize that it confirms the initial conclusion that it was not in the self-interest of the Soviet Union to assassinate Kennedy, nor would, would it have been sensible to get somebody like Oswald involved. And, the, and there is no evidence, as I say, that, that can link Oswald during this critical period when he had to be making the decision, which was the decision that had to be made after he got back to, Mex to Dallas from Mexico City. Uh, and the same is true, incidentally, of the Cubans. 
So I think there's, it just doesn't, when you get into the details of this, it doesn't make sense for either the Cubans government or the Soviet government to want to use Oswald to even, to want to actually assassinate Kennedy. They could be mad as hell, but they assassinating him was not in their self-interest on either side. I would just like to go back for one second to the shooting itself, because one of the kind of weird and fascinating detours in this story, and I was not aware of this, you know, there's the release of the police audio, which I guess some thought might prove uh, the existence of a, of a second shot, of another shot fired from the grassy knoll. What was fascinating to me was the interview that you did with the rock drummer sort of audiophile whose name, I think Todd referred to him a minute ago, I can't remember his name, but uh, how that story came to be, how the audio came to be revealed by a porn magazine called Gallery Magazine. Right, right. And then what was the name of the, of the, the rock drummer? And tell us about that. His name is Steve Barber. He lives near Mansfield, Ohio, in a little town called Shelby. And uh, he was a conspiracy-believing devotee of the Kennedy assassination. And when he heard the release that you're referring to came out at the very end of the investigation by the House Select Committee on Assassinations in 1978. And this tape came at the very end. It was a dictabelt tape of a recording of one of the uh, police broadcast channels. And the thought was that even though they were inaudible, there were sounds on that dictabelt recording that indicated sonic sounds of gunshots. And they released it, you are right, on Gallery Magazine, which was a, a girly magazine at that time. And they put a paper record inside, which they used to do back then. Steve ran out and got the magazine. You heard me, he was not a normal customer of the magazine. He put it on and listened to it repeatedly, uh, assuming that he would hear some type of noise that sounded like a gunshot. Well, he didn't hear that, but he, he did hear uh, somebody talking. And what he, what he heard somebody talking, he heard somebody giving a command, which was coming from the other channel. There were two channels being employed that day. And what he concluded is, is that person speaking, that phrase was said about five minutes after the assassination. So what they thought was a, a sonic of a, of a uh, gunshot, uh, that recording was made well after the assassination took place. This was the big reveal of the House Assassination Committee, right? They yeah. bought into this. Yeah, it was. I mean, there were dissenting opinions on the committee. It was not a unanimous decision, but you're right. Unfortunately, that was at the end of their investigation and they had run out of money. So they basically said, we think there were four gunshots because we have this audio recording and uh, that means there was somebody else besides Oswald because we know he fired three shots that means there's an extra person hence a conspiracy but we're out of money thank you very much and uh, turned it over back to the Justice Department the Justice Department retained the National Academy of Sciences and they started looking into all this fancy uh, sound technique to see if this was they were actually gunshot uh, sounds on the tape Steve Barber wrote a letter to the National Academy of Sciences, you know, and I guess they probably looked at it. And these were people from Harvard and physicists. And, and here's a guy from Shelby, Ohio, saying, hey, I have this record from Gallery Magazine. And I think, I think that this was recorded afterwards. Well, after dismissing it, they looked into what Steve was saying. And 
they agreed that he was right and, and, uh, and basically disproved this acoustic evidence. Now, I will say that Robert Blakey, who was the chief counsel of the House Select Committee on Assassinations, who was in the movie, still believes the acoustic evidence is, is valid. But I think that we are more than confident that this whole thing was just a, a, a sad and, and, and basically silly uh, uh, addendum to this whole thing. And again, it shows the human factor. Steve Barber, a drummer, <laughs> is the one who <laughs> figures this out. <laughs> so here's a question for all three of you that maybe we could sort of conclude this discussion on, because, you know, one of the things that grabs me about this story, um, beyond the fact that, you know, I've, as I indicated before, I've been obsessed with JFK assassination from the earliest uh, days after it. We live in an era now where conspiracy theories are rife and they dominate social media. They are promoted by the president of the United States. Members of Congress of who subscribe to these yeah. conspiracy yeah. theories are elected to office. But it's really the conspiracy theories that grew out of the Kennedy assassination and the attacks on the Warren Commission that kind of gave, uh, you know, put the whole concept into American political culture. There have been studies showing that prior to 1964, the phrase conspiracy theory was almost unheard of. You, you didn't find it anywhere. And then starting in the 60s, Primarily with the Kennedy assassination, it becomes commonplace to the point where today it's something that's on everybody's lips. And just looking back on it, Judge, starting with you, I mean, it must be dispiriting in a way to see your work perverted and giving rise to what's been a, a, a very pernicious development in American political culture. Well, it's certainly disappointing, but I, I think that's what you're talking about and the assassination and the investigation of the assassination themselves have real relevance to today. And, and I know you, you want me to talk about it in terms of belief in conspiracies, but I'd, I'd like to talk about it in terms of what this assassination and our evidence tells us about why the assassination occurred. And I, I think once, once one comes to the conclusion that Oswald shot Kennedy and that Ruby shot Oswald, you have to focus on who these people were. Who was Oswald? Who, who was Ruby? The Ruby one is much easier to deal with, quite frankly, than the Oswald one, because once, once you realize the overwhelming amount of evidence that shows that Ruby expected to be a hero and, and he thought he was protecting Jews from being accused, he was you know, he was protecting uh, the Jewish community from a wave of anti-Semitism. And we, and we can follow that into a lot of details, which I won't go into at this point. But that evidence to me is overwhelming. So here, here was a guy who lived a life having to deal with anti-Semitism, for whom this terrible event caused him to think he'd, he'd murder Oswald to prevent a wave of anti-Semitism occurring in the United States. Oswald's own situation also involves looking carefully at the details of his life. And none of the conspiracy people, it's interesting, Michael, but if you read the conspiracy books, it's almost like Oswald doesn't exist. They talk about all the other people who might have been involved in the conspiracy, but no one gets into the details as we did 
of what was going on in Oswald's life in this, at this point and how the, the events of the Cold War and, and the Civil Rights Revolution, as a matter of fact, had, and, and Kennedy's own words had an effect on Oswald. So I think that's a great study in how do people who are unstable go out, get turned in, into murderers. Todd and uh, Rob, any um, final uh, thoughts on this? For me, this whole thing became a cautionary tale for exactly the reasons uh, you stated. We live in a time uh, where the president has been very conspiratorial, and it's quite concerning because conspiratorial theories often conflict with provable facts, and that's where you, you have to rectify the two. That's why we call our film true. We, we adopt uh, uh, Chief Justice Warren's concept of truth is the only client here. This was not a trial. This was meant to find the truth, not just to see who wins. And I'll give you one story to show how, how dangerous this can be. There's a fellow who was on the staff who's in the film named Murray Lawlicht, who uh, uh, is, he worked with Judge Griffin on the Jack Ruby uh, part of the case. And I brought all of the staff members together for a reunion, which you know, some of the footage appears at the very end of the film. This reunion took place after the first Republican debate where Donald Trump began to rise. And we were talking about what, what does the distrust in government mean? Where is it heading? And somebody raised their hand and said, I think it's heading to blow up the system. For example, Donald Trump. What I didn't know at the time is that Murray Lawlicht his sister is Jared Kushner's mother. So, <laughs> so, Murray well, anyway. Law, so, Mary, so Murray Lawlick has a connection that way to Donald Trump. And, uh, but, but we had no idea that at the time we filmed that, that Donald Trump was in, in our, in, gonna be president. But I will say as soon as he was president and November of 2017 rolled around, when more JFK documents were going to be released, there was an article printed that said the Warren Commission staff got back together with this film, with these filmmakers, and they put pressure on the law to tell Don not to release these records. So, and they named me and other stuff. So now we're part of a conspiracy. Again, just assuming things that are not true. You've just given rise to a whole new spate of conspiracy <laughs> theories right here, bringing in uh, uh, Jared Kushner. Rob, any final thought? Yeah, I, the, the, I, I would actually just circle back to what Todd said earlier, which is, uh, you know, what, what, what we forget and what was important in this movie is to put this in the context of the day of the Cold War, when there were three channels of news, and that was the only, and newspapers, and that's how we got information. And so... Today, we have all these different things that reflect and bounce off each other. People believe, want to believe what they think. And so they think something, and then they find all the supporting information to believe it, and it just snowballs and snowballs and snowballs. And what we see, you know, as these conspiracies, conspiracies get together, they reinforce each other, even though all of their theories conflict with each other. And so, for example, I had an investigator... <laughs> investigator came up to me and he said, well, Johnson did it. And Todd very compellingly said, that's really insulting to think that the president of the United States at the time would do that sort of thing. But he kept saying, well, the government, Johnson did it. And I said, okay, how? Right. And that's where the, his whole argument fell apart. 
And so it's this idea that he really wanted to believe what he thought and sought information to support that. And that was it. And so now we see it right happening today in, in all of the, in Q and all of these other reinforcing ideas. Well, all the more reason to do these kinds of uh, documentary films that are so well constructed that marshal the facts and importantly, that get the people who are actually there and doing the work on the record. So it's a very, very important. How can people see the film? It was released uh, on various yes, video on demand channels and all the way from uh, uh, iTunes, uh, Amazon, I think on demand will be coming soon. You could also buy it on Blu-ray as well. So on Google, Voodoo, just to plug our website, if you go to truthistheonlyclient.com, all of the platforms are there. Well worth anybody who's interested in the Kennedy assassination and conspiracy theories, uh, well worth watching. Judge Griffin, thanks for doing this. Uh, really helpful and uh, important contribution. And uh, Todd and Rob, thanks for making the movie. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Thank you very you much, Michael. Much. Thank you, Thank guys. You. Take care. It was a dark day in Dallas, November 63 A day that would live on in infamy President Kennedy was a right line Good day to be living and a good day to die He led to the slaughter like a sacrificial lamb He said, wait a minute boys, you know who I am that's a clip from Bob Dylan's Murder Most Foul, a record he released just in the last year and a reminder of how the Kennedy assassination and conspiracy theories about it are still embedded in American culture. And um, one Washington journalist who has been uh, waging a, a lonely battle to uh, bring the full truth of uh, Everything related to the Kennedy assassination to light is Jeff Morley. He has a very different view than the ones we've just heard. But we thought, since we're doing this show on the anniversary of the JFK assassination, it would be good to get all perspectives. So, Jeff, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you for having me, Mike. So, look, some of us uh, have been obsessed with the Kennedy assassination for uh, many, many years, uh, follow every twist and turn. And I have to say, we just interviewed Judge Griffin, uh, one of the surviving members of the Warren Commission, and the two filmmakers who made the movie about the Warren Commission, Truth is the Only Client. And they make a very powerful case that the Warren Commission got it right. Yeah. And that these mm -hmm. uh, decades of conspiracy theories are just that for which no real hard evidence has ever surfaced. You obviously have a different perspective on it. So tell us why. OK, so first of all, I, I don't have a theory. I, I look at the facts that are related to the Kennedy assassination. And as, as a journalist, I focus on, you know, what's the newest and latest facts and how do we put them in context? So I don't know exactly what the gentleman who spoke, you know, with you before said. I mean, the fact is, is that they knew nothing 
virtually nothing about CIA operations around Lee Harvey Oswald that occurred between 1959 and 1963. Their trust in the system was grossly abused by senior CIA officers who withheld material evidence in the assassination of the president. I don't, that's not really, you know, that's beyond dispute. And I talked to Howard Willens, who was the boss of, of Burt Griffin, and he said, yeah, I was naive to say the least about the CIA. That's what one of the members of the Warren Commission told me. So they really did not know how to investigate what was going on because they didn't know the CIA's deep involvement in the story. It was simply, you know, it was beyond their ken. They didn't know about the existence of the counterintelligence staff, which had been following Oswald for four years. So I think that they got locked into their interpretation of the evidence back then. They haven't really paid attention to the evidence that has come out in the past 20 years, which I think points strongly towards some kind of CIA operation involving Oswald in 1963, which is still top secret. Yeah, I, well, I'd like to hear what your thoughts on that specifically. M most people who follow this, at least a little bit, what they know that the CIA withheld was that the CIA was plotting to assassinate Fidel yes. Castro and in and working with the mob. Yeah. Now, yeah, so so that's one important thing that they that they did not know and which did not come out for about 10 or 12 years. And then when it did came out, the investigation was promptly reopened. So you can see how that revelation changed the nature of the investigation. It, it, once you had that, you had to investigate in a new way. That's one thing. The second important revelation that has come out really more in the past 20 years, and this is not something that is generally appreciated in the mainstream media, is it's not one piece of paper. It's now we, can, we have accumulated all of the records about Lee Harvey Oswald that the CIA had in its possession before November 22nd, 1963. And the Warren Commission was under the impression that the CIA didn't really know much about him and certainly wasn't interested in him, um, and that he was what the Warren Commission concluded, a lone nut, an unfortunate sociopath. But if Oswald was a lone nut, he was the rare sociopath who was of interest to the very highest officers in the CIA. James Angleton, chief of counterintelligence, and the people around him in the counterintelligence staff. And so what we've learned in the past 20 years is we've gotten the, the pre-assassination Oswald file, and, and a couple of things stand out. One, the idea that he was a lone nut, uh, you know, basically of no interest to U.S. government is absurd, okay? He was of deep interest to the top people in counterintelligence from 1959 to 1963. What we also learn from the file is we see, you know, where this information came from and where it went. Okay, and starting in November 1959, all information from the U.S. government about Oswald, his defection to the Soviet Union, his marriage to a Russian woman, his service in the Marines, all of that, Office of Naval Intelligence, State Department, FBI, and CIA, all of those records go to the CIA. And then they go to the counterintelligence staff, where they are very closely held by a super secret office named the Special Investigations Group. The poor people at the Warren Commission didn't know anything about the Special Investigations Group or the nature of this interest, so they could never look into it. And today, 57 years later, it's still under tight wrap, you know, tightly wrapped. So 
I sued the CIA in 2003, trying to get at some of this story. And I spent 16 years in court with them. And I've just written a little ebook about it called Morley v. CIA, My Unfinished JFK Investigation. And I tell this very long, frustrating saga about trying to bring this question to the attention of the courts. And ultimately, I wind up on a collision course with Judge, now Justice, Brett Kavanaugh. It's a very interesting story about how the current system gives deference to the CIA when it comes to- All right, I got, I got a bunch okay. of questions on this, sure, but starting with Kavanaugh, what's his role in this? Uh... Kavanaugh, in my, in, in my lawsuit, it came up for, for the appellate court and Kavanaugh ruled in my favor in 2013 and in 2017, in the last decision before he went to the Supreme Court, he ruled against me and said that the CIA deserved deference upon deference and Morley didn't know what he was talking about. So, okay. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, of course, now he's serving with Justice Breyer, who was the yeah. fact checker for the uh, Warren for Commission. For the Warren Commission, right. right. But look, <laughs> Jeff, it is not terribly surprising to me that Oswald, a Marine who defected to the Soviet Union, who marries a Russian, who returns to the United States, who, while in the United States, then visits, uh, just a couple of months before the Kennedy murder, visits the Russian embassy in um, Mexico City trying to get a visa to Cuba. It's not really surprising that the CIA and the FBI would have an interest in keeping track of him in the height of the Cold War. Where does that, how does does that get you to a conspiracy involving the assassination? Of course they were watching him. You would expect them to be watching him. But it seems to me, I, I just don't get the leap you're, you're making there. So they watch him everywhere he goes and they take no preventative action. This is a man who had, they knew, offered to share military secrets with the Russians and had a security clearance. He's not interviewed about that. He's just watched, and he's watched from Moscow to Minsk to Fort Worth to Dallas to New Orleans. Well, actually, FBI agent Hosty was trying to interview him in the weeks before the murder. Right. right. And counterintelligence chief James Angleton is advised that Oswald is, after making contact with Cuban and Russian intelligence agents in Mexico City, is back in Texas, and they do nothing. The point is, is that these people were running operations. And on the day of the assassination, CIA propaganda assets are brought to bear to spread the message, Kennedy was killed by a communist. And this is the third revelation that we've had in recent years. But Jeff, he was the, killed by a communist. That's true. No, 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 no. When the assassination happened, before there was any investigation- Oswald right? was arrested within two hours. Right. And the, so the first day coverage, of the assassination is shaped by CIA propaganda assets. Okay? Right. So that's, Telling that's basically the truth. Okay. I'm just saying, just listen to what I'm saying. The first day coverage is shaped by a CIA propaganda operation. That's one thing. Then in my lawsuit, so who was running this operation? Okay? My lawsuit concerned one the, the CIA officer in South Florida who was involved in this. Okay? He was running the Cuban students who had contact with Oswald. All of his records from 1963 are still secret. So what I'm saying is, look, I could be wrong, but you know what? In 16 years, the CIA never said, Morley's all wet. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Here's what, you know, they offered no explanation. When we get to see the rest of the records in next October, 
I'm telling you, we are going to see, I believe we will find evidence of CIA manipulation of Oswald before the assassination. Now, was that part of a conspiracy? I don't know. I haven't seen the records. Let's see the records and then we can determine, was it, was it, was it like you say, oh, you know, this guy killed the president, sorry, or was there something else going on? Je well, Je Jeff, let's just back up for a second okay, here, sure. but just for the benefit of our listeners who are yeah. not immersed in all of these details, you said you don't have a theory, but you have been investigating this for a long time. Yeah. So I guess, what do you believe happened? You know what I believe? You know, a lot of really smart people thought JFK had been killed by his enemies, okay? I, and I hope you guys appreciate that. Lyndon Johnson, Bobby Kennedy, Jackie Kennedy, Fidel Castro, Charles de Gaulle, none of them conspiracy theorists, all of them astute people, all concluded that Kennedy had been killed by his enemies, by his political enemies. A and lot of them course, thought the Russians had done it or the Cubans had done yeah, it. Yeah, right. Yeah. They had different theories, but they all, they all believed privately that the Warren Commission was wrong. So it's not crazy to think that the Warren Commission was wrong. Some of the smartest people around thought it was wrong. And we still don't have all the records. So was there a CIA operation involving Oswald before the assassination? There was. It was called AMSPEL. And it was a codenamed psychological warfare operation to, you know, discredit the, the Cuban government and, and ban things. So what's the story? Let's, let's have the rest of the story. That's what I'm saying. But are you saying that the, that the CIA... When you say the CIA manipulated Oswald, you're suggesting that the CIA directed Oswald to kill Kennedy. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I'm not I, I know you're not asserting that, but right, you right. believe that that is something that I, I, may I, I have happened. I, I think that's a component of what happened. I think that the you know these are these super secret operations around Cuba, you know, efforts to provoke a war with Cuba that type of thing, they also involve the Pentagon. And it's possible that the people who I was looking at in my lawsuit were, had actually been detailed to the Pentagon. So yes, I focus on what was the CIA's role in the events of November 22nd? How did it shape the, me the first day media coverage and the perception of all- And is the motive that after the, the failure of the Bay of Pigs, uh, Kennedy was you know, no longer, what, what, is, what, what was the CIA's motive in your view? I think if you, if, if you look at the history of the Kennedy era, one of the developments in the last you know, 10 or 15 years is people have really taken much more seriously the conflict between Kennedy and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The official history of the Joint Chiefs talks about this. By 1963, the, the generals were very alienated from Kennedy. They thought he was a menace to national security. Curtis LeMay referred to the people around Kennedy as cockroaches, okay? They really did not like Kennedy's policies. First of all, at the Bay of Pigs, but probably more importantly, the peaceful resolution of the missile crisis. In 1960, and then in 1963, Kennedy forces through a limited test ban treaty, which the generals hated. And so there was a lot of tension there in the upper ranks of the US government. Kennedy's policies towards Cuba were bitterly, bitterly opposed in Miami. And when he went to Miami four days before he went to Dallas, the death threats were constant. So it's not hard to see where the animus against Kennedy's policies would have come from within his own government. And yet, Jeff, Operation Mongoose, I mean, Kennedy was trying to overthrow Castro till the day he died. I mean, he, when, no, he, no, well, when he no, goes no, to no, Miami, no, no. he no. talks about, you know, looking forward to the day that Cuba is liberated, right? So... 
Well, no, Mongoose ended in 1962. Mongoose was not in effect in 1962. Okay, well, what was going on in 63 when Bobby Kennedy was pressuring Helms to get rid of Castro? Uh, Kennedy was was playing both sides. He was letting his brother play case officer, much to the annoyance of the CIA. And he was privately considering the possibility of restoring diplomatic relations with Cuba. He was playing for time. The thing is that Kennedy had defused the Kennedy, the Cuba issue with the missile crisis. So he was not going to go back and emphasize Cuba. And his enemies, his domestic political enemies on the right, who had been hectoring him to take a more aggressive policy towards Cuba, after the missile crisis, they had to be very quiet. So Kennedy was enjoying this lull. He'd gotten Cuba off the, the political map, but the animus against him was growing. So I think when you see that animus and you see the record of covering up, you know, from our friends on the Warren Commission to the House Select Committee on Assassinations till today, there's a vein of evidence about Oswald, the CIA in Cuba that has never been made public. I'm telling you, I think there's an important part of the story in that vein of evidence. Well, do you do you think that the Warren Commission and the Select Committee, you think they they have this, they had this evidence and they covered it up? No, no, no I don't okay. think so. I, I, okay. I think the Warren Commission was cut out of the loop. The House Select Committee started to get, um, uh, started to make some progress investigating CIA operations around Oswald. But then they brought in George Joannides, the guy who was running the Cuban students in 1963, and he stonewalled them. And, and, and we never learned about CIA operations in Oswald in, in 1963. And my lawsuit found that a lot of the records are still secret. So that, you know, they're trying to hide something there. So there's two ways of looking at it, which is, you know, they were, they, you know, they were just boobs and they missed this guy on his way to Dallas. He was super cunning, communist, you know, la-di-da. And the other way to look at it is, they're hiding sources and methods. Uh, that's clearly what they're doing. And they may have been running an operation around Oswald. There's a lot of evidence to support that. So, so that's not tell true. me a little about tell me a little about that, the, the operation you're talking about, because, you know, I, I said okay. before I challenged you a little bit. You know, of course, they were watching him, but then you said they were manipulating him. So okay. what's the sort of single best example you can cite of how they manipulated Oswald? Okay. So in. <clears throat> Let me just back up a little bit, okay? So for people who don't know the story. So Lee Harvey Oswald is this young man, self-educated from New Orleans, gone to the Soviet Union, defected, didn't like communism, came back, was still kind of a leftist. And in the summer of 1963, he writes to a pro-Castro group called the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, an organization which had been targeted by the FBI and the CIA tricks. Something else the Warren Commission was never told. And Oswald says he's going to go and be, make, make himself public in New Orleans. So the Fair Play for Cuba Committee writes back and says, please don't do that. Oswald defies them. So he's not really a member of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, and he goes public. Okay, And he says, I'm in favor of Castro. Now, nobody would have paid attention to this guy except for two organizations that were working in New Orleans at the time. One was called the Information Council of the Americas, which was a kind of anti-communist, you know, agitation, you know, advocacy group. And the other was the Cuban Student Directorate, the Revolutionary Student Directorate, which was a CIA-supported student group out of Cuba fighting Castro. So these two organizations, both of which are supported by the CIA, are the two organizations that publicize Oswald's activities as a Castro supporter. If these two CIA-funded organizations had not done that, 
Oswald would have gotten no publicity as an anti-Castro activist. So the CIA front groups publicize his anti-Castro activism before the assassination in August 1963. And then on November 22nd, when it turns out Oswald has been arrested for killing Kennedy, they publicize his pro-Castro connections again. Now, you can say, Mike, and people do say, that's just coincidence, okay? I just don't think so. I think that if those CIA group, I think somebody in the CIA intended that to happen. And there's a lot of evidence to support that. So that's where I think they manipulated him. And if you try and get an explanation of this story, right, I'm not putting out a theory. It's not my job to put out a theory. What's the CIA's explanation? They have no explanation except you're not allowed to know this story in 2021, let me tell you. You're not allowed to know this story. So Joe Biden next October is gonna face a tough decision. Does he make all of the JFK assassination files public, okay? President Trump four years ago caved on this question. He acquiesced to the demands of Mike. He had originally Trump. promised to do so, correct? Yes, he, yeah. Yeah, right. It's right. classic Trump. He promises to release them. He says on Twitter, all JFK records released. Okay? Yeah. The next day, he cuts the deal, and 15,000 JFK records have been withheld. Okay, So Biden's going to face that same question. What's he going to do? Now, does Biden want to continue the JFK cover-up? Does he care about JFK secrets? I hope not. I hope not. He should just say, make all this stuff public. And if Morley's all wet, we'll soon find out about it. I welcome it. I'm not, I, I, I'm not scared of that. I welcome that. I was going to say, Jeff, if you get your wish and yeah. Biden orders the CIA to release these, how many records are we talking about, by the way? Well, the National Archives says 15,843. Okay. Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a hefty number. Out of how many that have been released? I think we're in the millions, right? Yeah, we're like at, uh, you know, 4 million or something like all right, that. All right. So you think that these 15,000 outstanding records are going to be the Rosetta Stone, the smoking guns that's no, going to no, prove... No, no, no. I don't... No. Mike, you're an investigative what? reporter. Do you go out and look for a smoking gun? I'm not looking no. for a smoking gun. Okay. I'm looking all to right. complete the record. Right. Was this a CIA operation or not? We'll find yeah. out. I, you know... Okay. Jeff, do you believe that that is the sum total of government <laughs> records on this? Or if they release those, will you say that's the record and it's either there or it's not there? Will you come back on Skullduggery and... I'll come back on and talk about it. You know, okay. it, might point us, it, it might point us to other records that they don't want to. That's always been, you know, what they've said. I mean, that's always been true in the past. We've learned about more relevant records. But, you know, yeah, I'm, yes, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to talk about this. I'm not betting on a theory. I'm saying this is my reading of the fact pattern shared by a lot of intelligent, astute political observers and my friend Bob Dylan. <laughs> we're not, we're, is he we're, really we're not your nuts. friend? Wait, we're not wait, nuts. Wait, wait, wait. We have, a, did, we have good reasons for did, believing did what Dylan, we believe. Did Dylan you consult Dylan with this? you? Did he consult no, I with haven't. you? Okay. What's that? Right. I was gonna. I was gonna get excited if if you helped inspire murder most foul. I mean, because uh, next time we'll like, have you on with Dylan. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you know he's not that talkative. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've got more but, to say on the subject. But, um, all sorry, right. Go ahead. 
Well, look, uh, if if those records are released, uh, you will get the primary credit for it, well-deserved, and we'll see if it advances the ball on uh, what uh, for many remains the uh, longest-running murder investigation <laughs> ever. But um, we will definitely uh, be back with you to talk about it. Thanks, Jeff, well, for thank joining you for, us. Thank you for hearing me out. <laughs> 